Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Thanks for joining us. If you have family or friends who can't watch the show on one of the many avenues that are available, have them go to www.hotm.tv. They can click on streaming and watch the show live from anywhere in the world. We welcome our YouTube audience. We welcome... uh, Wherever they may be, our dish, our cable, our live, even our broadcast audiences still today, we pray God's blessings upon you all. Last week I mentioned the two-pronged attack the LDS make on people who leave the religion. First, they intimate that there is always egregious sin in their life. And second, if the departed attacks Mormonism after leaving, they suggest that it is because they are out to make money. I received a number of emails, a couple of emails actually, about the dastardly money-making schemes that go on in Christianity today by comparison of the LDS Church, about how they, uh, their leaders from the top, uh, Thomas S. Monson, the 12 apostles, their 70, the five or eight quorums of 70, their CES, all those, they just, if they make any kind of living, it's really a reimbursement of funds or a very modest income. And so uh, it, was, it was very interesting. So what we're gonna do is I think it's appropriate to replay a segment that we did on the LDS Church and Paid Clergy, which aired in June of last year. And it's gonna take about six minutes. Now, if you haven't seen it, I think you will be taken aback uh, by the way, the LDS apostles are not paid. So let's run that clip. Well, a great researcher and supporter of our ministry, John M., did some outstanding digging for us relative to the financial side of Mormonism. Thank you, John. And remember, according to Mormons, no true church, no restored gospel could ever have a paid clergy, right? Well, according to D. Michael Quinn, uh, In his book, The Mormon Hierarchy, Extensions of Power, stake presidents used to charge $1 per patriarchal blessings. Excuse me, stake patriarchs used to charge $1 for every patriarchal blessing they gave. This increased to $2 by the end of the 19th century. Strangely, patriarchs started encouraging faithful members to receive numerous patriarchal blessings over the course of their lives. That's such a strange thing, isn't it? During Brigham Young's reign, bishops took whatever they desired from all non-cash 
tithing donations. The LDS used to submit like corn or animals as part of their tithing and the bishops of the wards were allowed to take whatever they wanted from those contributions. In 1844, John Taylor limited bishops to 8% of the tithing being collected, while stake presidents got 2% of all the tithing collected by the bishops in their stakes. No paid clergy. This was freaking multi-level marketing profiteering, is what this was. In 1888, Wilford Woodruff established set salaries for stake presidents and set up committees to allocate 10% of the tithings collected by the stakes to the bishops of that stake. In the April 1896 General Conference, the First Presidency announced an end to salaries for local officers and to only pay um, the apostles of the church monies. By 1904, stake presidents were only receiving $300 per year for their work, and as late as 1920, some bishops still reported to have been receiving 10% of the tithes collected in their wards. So, in, 19, in 1896, it was announced only apostles were to receive a set salary. Now, we know this is no longer true. There's CES members, there's all kinds of other people, 70 and church office built people in the employee of the church who receive salaries. But what about these apostles and their salaries? These special witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ who are no different in their divine call than Peter and James and John. How are they compensated? First, we know they receive money from the coffers of the church. How much they receive, we do not know. Second, they can write books, especially if they're an apostle, and have a built-in market of at least 10 million people faithfully waiting to buy them. The higher they're up, for instance, profit, the more people that would probably buy the book. Last week, I said that I would be willing to bet that Thomas S. Monson, current prophet of the LDS Church, was a multimillionaire but questioned how he would acquire such wealth, having been a non-paid employee for most of his life. Someone called the show and said that they had heard that these apostles were conveniently placed on boards as directors or in different positions on boards, and that's how they continued to amass wealth as uh, apostles for the Lord, but also as businessmen. According to Michael Quinn's research in Extensions of Power, page 220 to 222, this caller was absolutely correct. Now, to be a director in a company usually means six day-long meetings, board meetings per year, and a week's worth or more of committee participation per year by the director or member of the board. According to CNNMoney.com, the average annual director's compensation in 2006 was as follows. A director in the manufacturing sector received $109,000 per year. A director in financial services received an average of $83,000 per year. And a director who sat on the board of a service sector received an average of $106,250 per year. So Quinn decided to reach the, uh, research the first presidency and the 12 apostles of 1984. Here is what they found. President Spencer W. Kimball, who, uh, this was 1984, who had been incapacitated since 1982, was a director on the Bonneville International Corporation. 
First Councilor Marion G. Romney, who, would, who had also been incapacitated for years, was a chairman of Beneficial Development Company, chairman of Beneficial Life Insurance Company, chairman of LDS Social Service Incorporated, director of Bonneville International Corporation, and director of Deseret Management Company. Second Councilor Gordon B. Hinckley, uh, who later became the prophet, was the chairman of Deseret Management Corporation Foundation, director of Bonneville International Corporation, director of Deseret Management Company, director of KIRO Incorporate of Seattle, director of Utah Power and Light, and director of Zion's First National Bank, all while they were apostles of the Lord. President of the Quorum of 12, Ezra Taft Benson, was a director of the Beneficial Life Insurance Company. Howard W. Hunter was president of the Polynesian Cultural Center in Hawaii, owned by the LDS Church, director of the Beneficial Life Insurance Company, director of Continental Western Life Insurance Company, director of Deseret Federal Savings and Loan, director of First Security Bank of Utah, director of First Security Corporation, director of Heber J. Grant Incorporated, director of PHA. PHA Life Insurance Company in Oregon, Director of Watson Land Company in Los Angeles, Director of Western American Life Insurance Company. Thomas S. Monson, who is now the prophet of the church, was president and chairman of the Deseret News Publishing Company, vice president of LDS Social Services, vice president of Newspaper Agency Corporation, Director of Beneficial Life Insurance Company, Director of Commercial Security Bank, Director of Commercial Security Bank Corporation, Director of Continental Western Life Insurance Company, Director of Deseret Management Companies, Director of IHC Hospitals Incorporated, Director of Mountain States Telephone and Telegraph Company, Director of Murdoch Travel, Director of PHA Life Insurance Company in Oregon, Director of Pioneer Memorial Theater, and Director of Western American Life Insurance Company. I could go through and name all the rest of the 12 apostles and they were all on some company or another, at least four, except for Russell M. Nelson, who was a retired physician who was put as a director of Zion's First National Bank. So I'm sure he had all the training for that. Um, not paid clergy, no, no paid clergy. A Latter-day Saint must go to the temple to live with... So we're back, and with that, let's have a prayer. Man, my appearance has changed. <laughs> Dear Lord, we, uh, we love you and we thank you. We praise you for this airtime. We praise you for the opportunity to speak about these things. We pray for our audience here, our audience everywhere who may view this show now, uh, this evening, or some other time. And we pray that uh, your truth will come through and that these things will accumulate and they will present a case for uh, you over this religious uh, group. So Lord, we, we pray for this. We pray for the callers and that I will have your uh, wisdom and peace and not my own failures. In Jesus' name, amen. As we reported last week and in our continued study of the untold history of Mormonism, the Nauvoo Saints, uh, numbering upwards of 20,000, began to leave in the spring of 1846 under the direction of Brigham Young. In addition to battling with their Gentile neighbors over polygamy, stealing from the Gentiles, and the growing threat of Mormon military, the LDS leadership, including Brigham Young, Apostles Willard Richards, John Taylor, Polly P. Pratt, Orson Hyde, were involved in a counterfeiting scheme where coinage was called Nauvoo Bogus. This Nauvoo bogus was authorized, created, and distributed by the Mormon leaders in Nauvoo. When U.S. Marshals reached Nauvoo in December of 1845 to arrest Brigham Young for his involvement in this scheme, he decided that the Exodus West couldn't wait any longer. 
Hundreds of wagons filled with Mormon people begin to move out uh, by December of 1846. Very few Mormons were left in Nauvoo. This permitted the governor of Illinois, Thomas Ford, to say before a state legislature, quote, it is with much satisfaction that I am enabled to say that the people called Mormon have been removed, end quote. I think in reporting this unheard history that the LDS leaving the state was both an unfortunate event in some ways, but a deserved one. I say this because Mormonism teaches even its children today that they were on the receiving end of all the persecution because of their righteousness. If, and this is an important thing to consider, if Mormonism was Christian, and taught and lived the Christian life, it never would have been exiled from Illinois or any other place. There were Christian communities all over the United States, or at least the Eastern United States at the time. America was founded on Christianity, for goodness sakes. Remember, Mormonism was driven out because they weren't Christian then. Nothing's changed now. They stand by their history. And they were not Christian then in deed or in doctrine. Uh, and they weren't driven out because they were Christian, okay? I was taught as a Latter-day Saint that the general reasons for the Mormon expulsion from Illinois was one, that the Gentiles were jealous of their success and their growth, and two, that they were suffering for valiantly possessing the truth of God because they were good and the rest of the United States was evil. There may be some truth to some of the stuff regarding the Gentiles or the non-Mormons, but what the LDS do not admit today or teach, even to their adults, is there were plenty of things that they did to cause the people of this nation to, uh, well, to fear and loathe them. First, they were religious elitists. They are uh, telling people like they do today that they alone possess all truth and no one else has all truth. To the Mormons, it was always their way or the highway. Now, sometimes the LDS will defend this, it's our way or the highway stance by saying Jesus had that same stance. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. And if he can make that stance, there is nothing wrong with a church making that stance. I would suggest that Jesus did demand this. Absolutely. But there is a great difference between saying he is the author and finisher of our faith and claiming a man-made religion is the only true church on the face of this earth and that everyone has to belong to it or they will not live with God. Secondly, what was the LDS way that they were claiming everyone needed to embrace back there at Nauvoo? What were the surrounding neighbors and people of Illinois hearing and seeing about the LDS that caused such fear and loathing? Think about this, okay? And use this in your discussions with the LDS when they start talking about how persecuted they've always been. First, they had a guy leading the church before he was killed who was dubious in his history at best, and he claimed to receive revelations from God and to be able to trans translate uh, ancient uh, papyri. They witnessed a town, Nauvoo, that had their own, created their own set of laws. They witnessed a secret 
sect practice of polygamy where their own daughters were being taken in and being married uh, at a very young age from their community. They saw a people who thought it was okay to steal from non-Mormons. They watched this group fight, retaliate, and parade a giant army as if going to war. They heard or saw firsthand Mormon retaliation in the form of Danite guys like Porter Rockwell. And they watched as this group grew in great numbers relative to most of the other towns in their states. Add to the fact that they spouted the idea that they were literally going to take over the world. How would you react? Do you think a group would frighten us today if it were here in the United States like that? Do you think this would arouse the attention of the federal government? I've used this example before, but I want you to just imagine in your community, somewhere in your state, in maybe a rural area, there is a town of 20,000 militant uh, Muslim, Islam fundamentalists that have gathered in the community and they have been known to have taken lives, okay? They have a singular leader who secretly practices polygamy with the women from your area. He has made his own laws. He has said things against the United States and he's established his own military. He even rides around on a horse or now on a motorcycle dressed in full military regalia. Add in the fact that the followers of this man come into your town or community and they tell people all the time that they are going to take over the world. Would you fear this group? Would you try and get rid of them? Would you call in the National Guard? Well, this is how Nauvoo Mormonism was seen then. Listen, America, Americans have never appreciated people or groups that threaten two key things about our lifestyle. We don't like people who threaten our physical safety, and we don't like people or groups who threaten our property. In fact, our laws are sort of categorized into three sections, infractions, misdemeanors, and felonies, based off how much injury is caused to a person and how much property damage was caused to another person. I mention this in the hope of helping you LDS step down from your we've been so persecuted high horse and see your contributions to the troubles that you faced back there. Gordon B. Hinckley, before he passed away, was a master of getting the LDS to vicariously remember, even relive, a reconstructed and sanitized version of the LDS history, constantly honoring the forefathers who bore such hardships for the church. Today, Mormon youth actually dress, usually in the summer, in 19th century garb and drag handcarts across a portion of the hot desert in order to sort of relive this exodus west. I wish they would tell these good kids that it was what was leading Brigham to bring people out here and why they had to come here in the first place. After Brigham and his train left Nauvoo, they stopped in a place called Winter Quarters, which today is Omaha, Nebraska. And he and 142 others in April of 1847 left for the Great Salt Lake. Without question, this trip was arduous and difficult, but the Brigham Young party reached the Salt Lake Valley in July of the same year. Brigham Young had his dream, total seclusion, total allegiance of a people, and total control.
where Mormonism would have you believe that upon seeing the Salt Lake Valley, Brigham Young said, This is the right place! I wonder if he looked and said, Yeah, this is the right place. <laughs> Many people like to suggest today that Brigham was a good man. The opinion is usually based on the indisputable fact that he was a hard worker, a clean liver, and that he knew how to lead people to productivity. But these same traits are shared by most bloody totalitarians. And I'm not angry, I'm just being real and painting you the picture that you never hear. This is the other side of the coin. In fact, I'd like to go on to record to state that Brigham Young, I've said it before, was in fact a very, very bad man. And uh, one who would resort to almost anything to exercise control over everything he possibly could. Like most totalitarians, Brigham was not a man of small vision. And he quickly laid claim to a parcel of land that was absolutely enormous. Specifically, Brigham claimed all the land stretching from San Diego, California to present-day Denver and from Wyoming to Arizona as theirs. Zion, as Brigham called it, included all of present-day Utah and Nevada, parts of Idaho, Oregon, Colorado, Wyoming, most of Arizona, a big part of California, and parts of New Mexico. According to the book Zion in Courts, Firmage and Mangrum suggest that this segment encompassed one-sixth of the United States, or about 265,000 square miles. Now, remember, church and state were one single body in Zion, what Brigham called Zion. Courts were headed up by LDS authorities and functioned as church courts who had the right to also inflict corporal punishment. Uh, this was in 1846. Three years later, in 1849, however, a civil administration was put in place and formed what Brigham named the State of Deseret which Young preferred over statehood to the Union. This model for Deseret is what Young hoped would last, theocracy, seeing himself as a benevolent dictator. I firmly believe that if Mormons today had the ability and opportunity, they would reinstitute and impose this theocratic model upon the state, upon the nation, and upon the world, if possible. Their history proves, and their doctrines and teachings prove, this is their ambition. Author David Bigler, who wrote Forgotten Kingdom, suggests, however, that this adopted civil administration was just a facade and was, quote, intended as a cover for the theocratic apparatus that truly governed the people. Bigler notes that when Deseret's General Assembly, which included a Senate and a House of Representatives, was put together, there were no elections held, just assignments given to the most prominent LDS men to uh, fill these positions in the state and house. But Brigham Young was not so big that he could manipulate, manipulate the U.S. government. In 1850, Utah became a United States territory under the power of Washington, D.C., and the Mormons out West, thank God, fell under this jurisdiction and control of Uncle Sam and his appointed territorial officers. The problem with this setup was in a large way geographical. Washington, D.C. was a long, long way from Salt Lake City, Utah in 1850, and Brigham Young knew it. So Brigham became Utah's first governor, which took the whole of the region back into his thick, calloused hands. And absolute power corrupts absolutely.
In one sermon printed in the Deseret News in September of 1856, Brigham Young made it very clear what he thought about the United States and its watchful eye upon them when he said, quote, As the Lord lives, we are bound to become a sovereign state in the Union or an independent nation by ourselves. This is really important to understand, my friends. When Jesus broke down all the walls, all the races, all the genders, nations, and people, and made the gospel available to everyone on the earth, with his church a body of regenerated believers, Brigham Young sought to resegregate what the Lord's, uh, the Lord's wonderful desegregation to establish a separatist master race, so to speak, on the ground of an imperial and autonomous nation that he called Deseret. This was theocratic totalitarianism. Obviously, the title of governor in this theocratic state was also a facade. Young wanted to control, to dictate everything, and he did. And if a person wanted to stay in the good graces of Young and his autocratic rule, they had better toe the line of obedience. Young told people how to worship, how to live, and as Richard Abanus points out in his book, One Nation Under Gods, even what to wear. It said Young, quote, the man whom God calls to dictate the affairs in the building of his Zion has the right to dictate about everything connected with the building up of Zion. Yes, even the ribbons the women wear, and any person who denies it is ignorant. Have you ever had to live or work or spend time with a truly, truly controlling person? I'm not sure if there's anything more demonic. Contrast the controlling individuality with a genuine Christian. In his sermon, Brigham Young used the word dictate twice. This was not a random choice of words for Brigham, for he thought himself as a dictator. Now, admittedly, the word dictator may have meant something very different back in those days, but the word did mean when I speak, you act. And this is how Brigham saw his relationship to people in this now isolated place. He spoke, they acted, or else. In a sermon in 1871, he stated, quote, I have been your dictator for 27 years, end quote. And Heber C. Kimple plainly described Young as, quote, our governor and dictator. Again, does this sound like Christianity? Does this sound like loving people filled with grace, trying to work with each other, learning? Yes, there are people who have to exercise control. But does this sound like Christianity in action? Now, keep the image of Brigham Young's Utah in your head and then ask yourself, what was going on in other parts of the world, just other parts of the United States throughout the Christian world? Were there Christians then who were praising God, singing uh, hymns, teaching the doctrine of grace, allowing people to live how they choose, teaching with love and the, and the fruits of the Spirit and uh, salvation by Jesus and Jesus alone? Absolutely. But for some reason, Brigham Young thought that his ways of control and threats and violence and even murder, which we're going to talk about as the weeks go on, were superior to the ways of the biblical Jesus Christ. Brigham Young wouldn't even let the people own land. Uh, Instead, they were allowed to live on parcels meted out to them that were given to them by Brigham's church. Interestingly enough, 
The most beneficial lands were taken up by Brigham and other high-ranking officials like the creeks and the canyons. In addition to not owning their own land, church members were forced to consecrate and deed everything they owned over to the church trustee and trust. Guess who it was? Brigham Young. In the Journal of Discourses, Volume 2, page 298, Young justifies this consecration in this way. He says, Since the world belonged to God and the saints were only acting as stewards of God's property and the purpose of their stewardship was to build up the kingdom of God here on earth, which means Mormonism, always means Mormonism when they say that, uh, which fell under the jurisdiction of Mormonism's head, Brigham Young, he had to have the ownership or the rights to all those things. Absolutely amazing. When we come back, we'll continue to talk about Brigham Young. We'll open up the phone lines, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. We'll see you in a second. Here's the real kicker about all of it. If a person apostatized or left the church, they lost, first of all, they were stranded in an isolated place that would take them a month by horseback to get out of. Secondly, they would lose their everything and were forced to abandon it to the church. So here the person was in the desert, owned nothing, and had to agree with everything that Brigham said. Uh, and if they chose to think for themselves, they were stripped of all they had, usually including their wife and their family. There was no choice. People were stuck. And we are going to talk in future weeks about how when some men tried to escape, Porter Rockwell and the Danites followed them out and killed them where they, where they stood. So it's pretty much, in, in a way, the same situation today, my friends. How many emails do we read from people who say, I know the whole thing is a sham, but I can't leave it. My whole family is in it. My employer is LDS. I have nowhere to go. We read them often. I want you to know that you do have a place to go. And it's into the arms of the Lord, even if beginning by secret. You go to him and you say, Lord, I know what I'm in is a sham. I need you to forgive me of my sin. I need you to take my life over. I want to be a Christian who leaves this world as a, as a true believer in you, Lord. You show me the way how to get out of this deserted, isolated, autocratic place where everything in my life is controlled. And he will do it. We read the success stories all the time. And I want to tell you something. All the threats, the things you say in the temple that if you do this, you're going to lose everything. And all the threats that you'll, you'll fall apart financially and you'll fall apart. I want to tell you something. Every single person I know who's left the church is still walking around happy. And, and especially if they left knowing the Lord, their lives are better. They praise God. It's a miraculous change to leave. You won't have this cloud hanging over your head like they threaten you with. I can promise you that, especially if you leave because you found a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's open up the phones, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. Please, first-time callers, if we can. We love LDS callers uh, oh, above all. Have your question or comment ready. And once you are put on hold by the operators, when you come back on and I say you're on the air, that means you. Don't have your TV turned up. If we have to wait too long, I have to cut you off. I don't like to, but we got to keep it moving. Let's go to Bob in Riverton on line two. Bob, you're on Heart of the Matter. 
Okay, thank you. You're welcome. You're on the air, Bob. Hello, Sean. Hello, uh, hello. Hey, Sean, question for you. Yes. Uh, you've talked quite a bit about the Mormons claiming they're Christians. Yes. The question I have for them, and I have talked to several Mormons, they believe they're going to become a goddess, a small G-O-D, right? Yes. Okay. Do they believe in the Ten Commandments? They do. Okay. Then my question is this, and I'll, if you want, I'll hang up so I can hear your reply on the air. Okay. How can they claim to be Christians and believe in the Ten Commandments when they oppose the very first two? You shall have no other gods before me. I am your only God. And when he says no other gods, it's small g. Yeah. And the second commandment is you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. If they truly believe the first two commandments that God gave Moses, number one, they can't become gods. And number two, how can they worship and honor a false prophet? Okay, Bob, I'll answer you off the air. Thanks for the great question. Okay, thank you. Okay. Uh, it's going to probably disturb you, their answer, but what they say is we don't have any other gods before him. We have them after, but we don't have any before him. We don't know who God's father was or his father or that eternal regression of God's. That is not, does not concern us. The God, our father, our heavenly father is our heavenly father, and we have no other gods before him. That's how they would answer. As far as uh, idols and idol worship or becoming gods, and they believe that that is after and that that is part of progression, that we were commanded, they'll use this to be perfect, even as uh, my Father, uh, which is in heaven, is perfect. And they'll say that is a straight line out of the Lord's mouth to become like God. And like God means a God ultimately in Joseph Smith's mind and in the minds of the LDS. As far as following the prophet, they believe that he supports what the Christian church should teach, that it's true Christianity. And uh, they don't believe they are idol worshipers at all in the fact that they become a God. They don't believe they're going to worship themselves. They're going to worship their Heavenly Father and move on from there. That's how they answer it. I know the arguments. I know the insanity of it. But that is how they do it. And they firmly believe that they are honoring God with this position. Let's go to Stacy in Clearfield. First time caller. Stacy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. I'm Stacy. You hung up on me last week. I'm sorry. And I was after my friend Carrie, and you said, she's friendly. <laughs> well, yeah, we watched it again this morning. You're great. Oh, thanks. Okay. Uh, can I tell you what I think about strategy and your topic tonight? Yes. Okay. Let's not forget the strategy of the mountains and the water, and they did have people post that these people were criminals. They were running from the law, and what better place than Utah? So when he said, this is the place, it was all strategy. Yeah. I mean, it was about being able to evade the law because they were running from the law, and they needed to be able to see invaders who were coming in. I think that's a, a very good uh, uh, good. Uh Theory, I, I think it holds as much water as any theory I've given tonight about it, but I do think that there was something to all of it. They ran from the, the law. They had always been running from the law. They were guilty of uh, doing things. They deserved these things, and I think they set themselves up here that way. Oh, very guilty of a lot of crimes that are still very much crimes and hiding behind, you know, Christianity, which, let's just 
call it like it is. Yeah. And what's well, interesting? Not that, is it? What's interesting? So, by the way, last time my friend called, she wasn't really sure, and we checked into it, but it's okay for us to plug our church. And we love Alpine Church in Riverdale, and apparently you've been. And it's in Leighton also, and we love them, and we want to support your ministry. But really, the strategy of tonight's, uh, I mean, the whole thing about tonight is Utah being the place. It is. It's strategy. They had people in the mountains. They had people down watching. And it really was to evade the law, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. So Great point, Stacy. Hey, Thank you so much. Let's, let's just face up to what's real. Okay. God bless you. Hey, wait a second. We love Riley. What? We want to say we, we love Riley. Riley? He's my son, Riley. Okay, say, say you love Riley. Yeah, and he's Christian too. Woo! All right. You got, you got all your plugs in. Are you sure there's not some business you want to try to plug tonight or anything? I'm just kidding. No, just stop, stop. Alpine Church. Okay, that was a good one. We like Alpine Church. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you, Sean. Okay, bye. Well, she has a heart, doesn't she? Let's go to Eli in Ogden. Eli, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. You better be careful. Monson might call out the, uh, the militia out after you. I know. But they carry, they carry uh, briefcases today. Yeah, well, anyway, um, I just wanted to call about a comment that was made. This goes along the lines of your first caller when the one caller talked and said that they, the LDS Church believes that, the, uh, that God walked on earth. Well, if you believe that, then that throws out the whole story of Genesis, because in Genesis, God was the beginning. You know, in the beginning was the word, was God, and the Word was God. Right. And so if you believe that, then you might as well just throw the whole Bible out the window, because then Genesis is false, because you don't believe that the Creator actually was the Creator. The Creator was someone who walked the earth, you know, if you use that kind of logic. They, they twist, they've twisted most sacred things. And in fact, I'm glad you brought that up. Somebody gave me uh, the Joseph Smith translation. They call, they call this the inspired version of the Bible. And actually, the people who print this now are the reorganized LDS Church and not the LDS Church here. The LDS Church doesn't want to touch it because they realize there's so much stuff in it. But Joseph Smith sat down and he went through and he was going to translate the Bible as it should have been translated. And oh. so you talk about Genesis. You know what? the uh, uh, In the beginning, uh, let's just read it so I don't mess it up because I mess up things when I'm uh, on the air. Anyway, wait, wait, wait. Go, but I'm just saying... You know, they, they, I get no how, can they, how, on this. how can they defy that logic saying, you know, that God was the creator of everything, but somebody created him? They, uh, I know, they, they just take the Bible and throw it out the window. So uh, thank you so much for your call, Eli. Thank you, Sean. Okay, bye. I'm making my point, darn it. Now listen, it says in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, you got that? Joseph Smith's inspired version. He says this is how it really should have come from the hand of Moses. And it came to pass. Now, that is the most oft-used phrase in the Book of Mormon. And it came to pass. Uh, that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, I reveal unto you concerning this heaven and this earth. Write the words which I speak. I am the beginning and the end, the Almighty God. By mine only begotten I created these things. Yea, in the beginning I created the heaven and the earth upon which thou standest. So you can go through and you can take out some very important passages and read Joseph Smith's inspired version, which just to let you know, he took it just by thinking, 
going back into that dissociated spot and came out with, with what it was. And you know what it is? I smile, but it's a crime. It is just a crime. In fact, I say in the book that we uh, give out, I was a born again Mormon, Joseph Smith's biggest crime against the world, I don't believe was polygamy, wrong as it is. I don't believe even the Book of Mormon, which wrong as it is. I don't believe even temples, wrong as it is. It was him taking the Bible, messing with it, and then getting people to believe that it couldn't be trusted unless it was translated correctly. When you do that, and you get people to say, well, I can't really trust this. You open them up to anything you want them to believe, like moving out to Utah and following a guy like Brigham Young. Let's go to Scott in Bountiful. Line one, Scott, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi, Scott. Um, I, I'm going to refer to what you were talking about earlier in the program about uh, the power and the money. I think that uh, I believe that all from the beginning it was all about uh, power and uh, greed. Yeah. Um, my great 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 grandfather came across in 1848, and they, you know, they went over to England and recruited all these people that were living in poverty. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why they broke their backs trying to get across the frontier like that, because they knew they were going to get huge amounts of land mm. as long as you know, as long as they followed the doctrine. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, you know, it's been like that from day one. They got out here. My grandfather, he got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres, you know, on creeks and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so well, I think it, that was the it point his? making earlier was, was a really good point about, you know, was that money Was that land his, Scott? Pardon? Was that land his? It, it wasn't before, no. It became his. It did become his? Because uh, from well, everything, everything I've read... The land was not given, it was not theirs. It was just theirs to have stewardship over, but it remained in the property of the trustee yeah. and trust Brigham Young. Yeah, you might, you, that's probably true. It didn't become theirs until, if they lived properly and didn't break any rules, and then when Brigham Young passed away, or later on it, you know, it became huh. theirs. But they had to follow the guidelines and everything. Yeah, I wondered when uh, property suddenly became people's here in the state. We'll have to figure that out. Great call, yeah. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, bye-bye. We're going to Tony in Provo. Tony, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello? Tony? Yes. You're on the air. Oh, I'm on the air, yes. I just wanted to say, when I moved here in 1983, that um, I remember applying for work in nursing, and when they'd ask me, they asked me, are you LDS? And I said, no, I'm not. They said, they slammed the phone down. I thought, what? And and this, this state is so strange in their beliefs, uh, how they, they just, uh, they... They think that Brigham Young and uh, Joseph Smith are gods. They're not gods. And every time the missionaries would come over, they would uh, take the Bible away and hand me the Book of Mormon. And I oh, said, yeah. what is that? You know, I never even know what a, knew what a Mormon was until, you know, what, 30 years later? Right. And I just thought, well, who are these people? They're, they're, they're odd. And every dime that they get, they have to give it to the church. And then they live off the welfare farm or whatever it is, you know, and they, everything they have, they have to give to the church. They have well, not, to sign over deeds to their houses. Not the anymore. And everything. And I think that's wrong. They don't have they, to. I don't think they're playing with a full deck. I really don't. <laughs> I don't. They don't have to sign over the deeds to their houses anymore. They do in the temple. Anymore? Anymore. Yeah. They did use they used to have to consecrate everything they had and actually give it to Brigham Young and the church back in the day. But today what they do is they promise to give everything that they have, will have, 
now or in the future to the building up of the kingdom of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They, they covenant in the temple to do that. That's what temple people do. They, See, they, I, live, I believe in one God, one heaven, and one hell. Tracking with me but if tonight. Joseph Smith and, and Brigham Young were so powerful, how come they weren't resurrected and brought back? I had a duck bite me once, and it was horrible. I mean, as long as we're just saying whatever we want. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it's scary because I know it's lies, but that's this that's their state. I, I'd like the mountains. It's not the city that keeps me here, but it's yeah. just getting more scarier as you live here. Uh, it's amazing, huh? The mountain lions and the and the tigers and everything is just going nuts on us. <laughs> yes, but anyway, that's my my feeling toward the Mormon people. They don't want you to read. The Holy Bible, and that's the only book that I'll read. Yeah. I'll never read the Book of Mormon because I'll never be a Mormon. Well, that is, that's a good thing, Tony. I, I, I appreciate your call. You've provided a great deal of insight. And one heaven, one, hev one, heaven, one hell, and one God. Amen, and it sister. it truly isn't Joseph Smith because they killed him. You know, is it a full moon? His ignorance. And Brigham Young and his 58 wives. And, and Did all the Colombian cartel make a drop that. in Utah this week? Pardon? I'm just talking. Tony, it's okay. been great, great to talk to you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now listen, don't get mad at me. I know she's a believer, and I, you know, it, this is part of the show. She has a personality, and I like to play with personalities. That's all. I'm the worst. People can make fun of me all day long, and I know you do. All right, let's go to Gerald in West Jordan, first-time caller. Gerald, you're on Heart of the Matter. Well, good evening, Sean. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Oh, I'm lovely. Thank you. Excellent. I, I basically have a simple comment. Okay. And, and I, I, <laughs> I hope it sounds articulate, if you will. But I actually came from uh, an Irish Catholic background, uh -huh. and I moved to Utah. And in doing so, several years ago, I became LDS, uh -huh. became active in the church, and even got a temple recommend. Huh. Well, subsequently, as time went by, I come to realize that the church wasn't for me, mm -hmm. and a lot of it was misguided, if you will, uh -huh. trying to fit in and so on. So I left the church. Well, I guess my comment really is, is when it comes to churches as a whole, don't you find that churches have good and bad no matter which church you go to? The LDS church is not a single church that is responsible for the, <laughs> the, the world falling apart. I mean, if you look at every religion... Mm -hmm. uh, Catholic, LDS, Baptist, so on and so on, you'll find enough fault in each one mm -hmm. that you could probably run a program indefinitely on each one. Sure. I guess my question to you is, is as you turn your watchful eye on the Mormon Church, do you look upon yourself and say, hey, here's where we're corrupted, or here's the problems that we've created? Yeah. Are you being fair to, to everyone? Because yeah. I've, met, I've met good people that are LDS, and I've met people that are LDS that are so full of crap that you just right. explode when you're around them because they just don't have any depth of discussion. Gerald, there's a couple. Let me go to your comments and just explain uh, how I see it, and I think most uh, people would concur. R organizations, you're right, all have troubles because we're, we're monitored by, by men. God tries to work through us, but we get dumb and we do things, right? But there's a right. big difference uh, Gerald, for instance, Roman Catholicism and Mormonism have a lot in common because they're a top-down and they're a hierarchy and they have a lot of things that are not biblical, in fact, extra-biblical. So you're going from Catholicism to Mormonism, it makes really good sense. That makes a good home for a Catholic and a Mormon because of the structure. But here's the problem. Mormonism 
claims to be Christian and their doctrine is anti-Christian. Now, Catholicism has its problems. I was never a Catholic, so I can't talk to them. But I have become a Christian, and you're right, all churches have issues, but when you find a church that teaches the core issues of Christianity, Jesus, God in the flesh, Trinity, three in one, uh, resurrection, uh, the Bible as a holy book of God, uh, these, these core issues, you'll find that yes, while administration and while certain pastors and boards and, and people can be problematic, core issues are why we go to church. They're, it's not really how good the people are or how friendly or anything. It's the core issues of doctrine that are taught. Mormonism's core issues are anti-Christ, I'm sorry, because they take away from the cross and they push on a works-based salvation. So I understand your point. Now, to be, to be fair, when people bring up problems with the Christian church, I don't hedge. I'll say I agree with that. I think there's too much of this or too much of that. And I go right into it. I think our church today has gotten so liberal and so without the word of God, it's despicable. And I think that we need a revolution within our church before we're ready to embrace Mormonism as once they, once they change. But so I understand your point, but I don't agree with you. Well, I, you know, you're absolutely right. I guess the hardest thing that I'm having problems with is the fact that I truly, truly believe in God. I truly, truly am reaching out for Him, and I truly want Him in my life. Uh -huh. The problem is, is everywhere that I seem to turn, I run into, you know, I run into the business, and I run into and then I come to Utah, I joined the Elvis Church, and I find it to be so misleading. Yeah. And so now I find everywhere that current Gerald, not there in religion. Gerald, I'm sorry to interrupt you. You're digitizing. I don't know if you're... Yeah, we lost you. Uh, listen, Gerald, if you're near a TV, uh, I hope you'll call back and speak to the operator. Let us send you a book. There was an imperative Jesus gave. He didn't give that many, but he gave some, and one was you must be born again. And that's going to be really important to your view of what the church does and is to you versus just it being a place where you're trying to find acceptance and in a really good church. So if you'll, if you'll call back, talk to the operators, let us send you the book, I Was a Born Again Mormon. The first part of it teaches and talks about being born again, and I think that will help you in your quest, and maybe we can talk again. Let's go to Veronica, Salt Lake City. First time caller, Veronica, you're on Heart of the Matter. Pray for Hello. the phones. Veronica, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, Veronica, how are you? Good, thank you. Um, question for you. I'm not a Mormon, and I've been here in the state for a few years now, and my question is, how do the missionaries entice non-Mormons to convert? What That's is it about the church that they make it so that, you know, they can convert people into this? Yeah, it's, that's a really good question, Veronica, and I'll give you off the top of my head the way I think it works. Now, I went uh -huh. through the Mission Training Center, and uh -huh. so I understand their tactics. I understand how they teach. First and foremost, they send out handsome young men who are clean cut. They kind of look like me. Just kidding. <laughs> At least the white shirt they're wearing. They're, they're, they're handsome. They are very polite, and, and they, they treat you usually with respect unless you get a wild hair guy out there, and every now and then you have those. And so they come, and they are like IBM salesmen. They have, a, they have a good appearance, and they come in, and they treat you with respect. So that's one thing. Nice young men who could be out partying in the college scene, knocking on your door and sharing a message about Christ, well, there's something to that. 
Secondly, they give you only the bare essentials of Mormonism. And they have what are the, the, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, which are faith, uh, baptism, repentance, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so when you teach those, that sounds, well, that's pretty, pretty Christian. And then they'll introduce, they'll slip in, well, we have this thing called the Book of Mormon. Hmm, that's kind of strange. And uh-huh. then they'll, they'll kind of sell it to you. And in the Book of Mormon, they go to a promise and it says, if you pray about these things, you are going to have a burning in your bosom that will tell you that these things are true. And what we want you to do, Veronica, is to take this book and go and just pray about God. If the things we've shared with you, if the book that you're reading is true, and he'll tell you, you're going to get a feeling that it's true. So you've had really nice guys. They're good looking and clean cut. They have a message that seems Christian, and they ask you to pray about it. Now, if you had a really strong Mexican dinner that night, and you went to bed and prayed on it, you could wake up with a rumbling and say, this is it. It's the truth. <laughs> Feelings are an inferior way to know truth. That's why God gave us a manual, which uh-huh. many millions died for. But see, these counterfeits come in and they throw you curveballs and they say, try this way, try this way. And if you get that feeling, that's how they get most of their people. Now, of course, there's others who join because they're Friends are Mormon. They join because they have a great basketball court in every one of their churches. They uh, have wonderful youth programs. They have sports programs, dances every Saturday night. Let me tell you, that is a youth draw like you can't believe all okay. across the world. So, but I think the missionaries use those general tactics. Okay. If you want the antidote to missionaries, one, you have to know your word. If you don't know the word, you're not a solid Christian, don't try to take the missionaries on because you're just going to sit there and it's going to be a non-event and they'll make you maybe doubt what you don't already know. Yeah. But the, the, the antidote is talk to them about the Lord, talk to them about the Bible, and after about sometimes three minutes, sometimes four, they run. And they say, we're going to come back another time and they'll never darken your doorstep again. That's how it works. Yeah, I've had a few and just told them I don't have time for them, so they don't bother me anymore. Well, that's a good way, too. (laughs) Veronica, great call. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. We're going to Craig in Taylorsville. Craig's a first-time caller. Craig, you're on Heart of the Matter. Craig, you're on the air. Craig? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. You're on the air. Hey, Sean? It's me. How you doing? All right, Craig, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Awesome. Hey, listen, uh, I'm not a Mormon basher, but I definitely was raised in the church, and my great-great-grandfather was a missionary companion of Wilfred Woodruff wow. uh, back in the day, and he also was in the uh, uh, Nauvoo Legion. Wow. But I'll tell you where I get hung up in the Book of Mormon, and I always do, is when... They talk about when they landed, the animals that were here on this continent, such as the horse, the elephant, etc. Yeah. And as we well know, uh, the horse wasn't even on this hemisphere until the Spaniards came in and were looking for the seven cities of gold. Yeah. But what I'm getting at is the book of Abraham. Okay. And the problem with the book of Abraham is, is the way that he attained that. And not only that, uh, they discovered the Rosetta Stone after he supposedly translated that. Yeah. And the scholars that saw the uh, facsimiles in 
the uh, the Book of Abraham, right, said that they don't have anything to do with what Joseph Smith was saying that they did say. Funeral tax. That's all they were. That's right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And you know, you were talking about the creation earlier, and and uh, basically uh, Joseph Smith was talking about all the people that were involved and everything, uh-huh. and uh, it contradicts the the Book of Genesis so bad. It's just it's just. Yeah, it's bad. It's 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 bad. Well, but anyway, I don't want to take up much more of your time. But I'm really, uh, I'm really touched by what you're doing, uh, Craig. Sean. Craig, can I ask you a quick question? Sure. What are you doing now? You're not you're not a, you're not not a basher, but are you a Christian? Do you do you love the Lord and do you try to follow Him? Go to church, read the Bible. I haven't been to church, but I I've studied every religion under the sun. Uh huh. When I went to college, I took meditations and classes, etc. Hey, uh, Craig, listen, uh, will you leave the operator your name and address or your number? Maybe I can call you. I'd like to talk to you. That's exactly what I was uh, wanting to do, Sean. But uh, I could go on and on about discrepancies and things like that. Yeah. Really, if you want to get to the dirt of the matter. The dirt of the matter. Yeah, yes. if you want to get to the dirt of the matter, you study the church history. Now, yes, yes, you do. Have you ever heard of the Bickertonites? Uh, I've heard the name, but you know what? I, Craig, please, I'm going to put you on hold. we got to move. Okay. We'll talk about that another time. All right, that's understandable. Thanks, uh, my do friend. Do you want me to just leave my name and address, pal? Yeah, the operator will pick it up. All right, thank you, sir. Thanks, bye-bye. Uh, line one, please. Oh, I think I hung up on him. Let's go to Ken, first-time caller. Ken, you have one minute, my friend. You're on the air. Go ahead. Ken? Yeah. You're on the air. All right, thanks. Hey, what's up, Sean? How you doing, bud? Hey, man, doing well. How you doing? Um, yeah, I took the uh, some ambassadors from the LDS church on. Um, anyway, I used to be a member. I was three degrees Book of Mormon Institute of Religion. I was reading the book of Galatians, and they fit the, the description because they claim that a uh, angel Moroni brought the new gospel or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I was just asking them if they ever made a blind man to see or a lame man to walk, and what spirit they carry, if they're really the true church and have the powerful priesthood. And I was wondering, and he just lied. He said that I don't know if it was a lie, but maybe you can help me because did um they actually make a blind man to see? Because he claimed that they did. And if, in fact, they did, then I'll shut up right now and just believe for the work's sake. And also, he said that Joseph Smith only had one wife, which was uh, Emma Smith, I guess. Yeah. Or did he have plural yeah. wives? One when he married her. And... All right. Hey, right, we got to let you go. Uh, I got to answer that question uh, off the air or next week. I'll try to get back to it. We are out of time. The hymn, the hymn book says, Hail to Brigham Young, hail to Brigham Young, praise him every tongue, and sing God bless our prophet, priest, and king. Hail to Brigham Young. They've been praising man since Joseph. They went on praise Brigham Young. Don't do it. Find the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a relationship with him. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.